Hey, Tony, thanks for picking me up. No problem, but uh, I better make sure you've packed a few things. So do you have your passport? Uh, yeah, it's up to date. Oh, good. Hey, did you pack a, a Speedo by any chance? You do not want to see me in a Speedo. Well, I brought mine <laughs> because guess what? We are going down to Brazil. We're going to Rio. So why don't you run back in and grab that Speedo and I'll wait for you. Oh, uh, give me two minutes. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> It's a new year, and it's a brand new Wayback Music Machine. CD player? Check. GPS? Double check. Roll bar? They're on the way. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we're getting ready for another rock and roll road trip. Are you ready, my friend? I'm always ready. Well, in that case, buckle up, because it's road trip time. So you know what? I don't think anybody wants to see either one of us in Speedos. So I packed an extra pair of trunks just in case. I packed, I packed a full-fledged suit. <laughs> <laughs> do you, you ever see the Simpsons when they went to Brazil? Uh, I don't think I have, actually. And, and it was actually, they, they were sued by the government of Brazil because it was such a negative. <laughs> Anyways, it's very funny. You should look it up. It's quite a good episode. But Now, I'm sure I'm sure people who are listening right now are saying, what are these guys talking about? Why are we going to Brazil? We're there's going, a good reason we're going to Brazil, Tony. Yeah, there's a great reason. We're going to be talking about one of our favorite people, Tina Turner, and uh, something pretty remarkable that happened in Brazil. So are you ready to take a trip? Always. Okay, well, let's do it. Let's jump. Well, here we are. It's January 16th, 1988 in beautiful Rio de Janeiro. And I think this might be our first ever trip to South America in the Wayback Machine. I think so. Probably our, I was going to say our farthest trip, maybe? Yeah, I think so. So, um, Tina Turner has just given herself a place in the record books, at least in this time. Uh, mm-hmm for January 16th, 1988, because she's just performed a show in front of 182,000 people here in Rio. And that is at up until, I think this record gets broken later, doesn't it? But mm-hmm. it does, yeah. Yeah, by a, a certain artist that we both know and love as well. But <laughs> at this time, it is the largest audience ever for a single artist. So that's and, pretty and, incredible. And and what's important to know, Tony, it was that it was the largest paying audience because sometimes there's been big concerts where you know, like Central Park, for example, where there's a big crowd, but they didn't pay. They actually people 182 thousand shot out money for this show. That is incredible. And you know, there's some other stats about Tina Turner. Um, I was reading that she has sold more concert tickets than any artist in history, which doesn't surprise me when you look at the fact that this show sold 182,000, right? Well, there's that. And also, she's probably, I mean, she toured nonstop from the time she left Ike. And let's not forget the Ike and Tina Turner days, but she toured nonstop rebuilding her career. Um, and it's her story, for me, is an amazing story of resilience and, and sheer talent that conquered all. But yeah, you're right. She, you know, if you're speaking to 182,000 people, but but more than that, Tony, she worked hard, man. I mean, you, you've you seen that documentary about her? I have. Yeah. I mean, she worked incredibly hard. And, and like you say, what a story. Because she had nothing when she was with Ike and he was controlling and he was abusive. And 
she left him with was it thirty cents in her pocket, thirty four cents or like something, that, yeah. and and a, mm-hmm. and a gas credit card like for a gas station, and that was it. And it got worse because then when she filed for divorce, Ike's lawyers were much better than hers, and she ended up having to pay his legal fees, which mm-hmm. is astounding. It's appalling as well, beyond appalling. Well. Uh, you know, but then you look at what she did over the years, and you know, look this tour that we're talking about, which is when she played 182,000 people. That tour was the third highest grossing tour by a female artist in Earth. It started in '87 in Munich, Germany, and she just played the world. In fact, there's a great live album taken from that tour called Tina Turner Live in Europe, which uh, I've included in the playlist because there's a great duet with David Bowie doing Tonight. Oh, so, that is a fantastic duet, yeah. Isn't that great? Yes. That's such a great song. I love that song. But she is amazing. And who would have seen that coming when Private Dancer came out? You know, here's a, because in, let's face it, at that time in the pop music world, in the rock music world, if you were in your 40s and you were female, I mean, you were pretty much done, right? Mm-hmm. And she hadn't had a hit. I mean, this is a, this is an artist that was putting out records throughout the '70s and '80s. Nothing is catching to the like. Nothing is getting played on the radio. She's she doesn't have any kind of um, fan base, and yet this album, Private Dancer. Um, I mean, I think up to Private Dancer, her biggest thing was doing the Acid Queen and Tommy. Yeah, I think you're right. But you know, I'm just looking at uh, Private Dancer. I've got it here on the shelf. What what an incredible, incredible album that was, and. Like you, like you say, you know, she had done a bunch of stuff, but nothing really stuck. And, you know, she had a, a bunch of people who really supported her after she left. Like she had to do the talk show circuit nonstop and appearances nonstop to try to pay off that debt from those legal bills. And then that career resurgence in the 80s, remarkable. And and she maintained it, which is even more remarkable. And what I mean by that, Tony, you know, there's a lot of artists that have a kind of, they come back, have a big hit or two, and then kind of disappear. She didn't. I mean, after Private Dancer, you know, she had, she was in Mad Max. She was you know, simply the best, or actually it's just called The Best in the Foreign Affair album. Yeah. She just continued on. Like she, she didn't kind of rest on her laurel. She didn't kind of say, well, okay, here I am, world. She kept working hard which resulted in this massive show in Brazil. Yes, for sure. And do you remember that footage? I think we both saw it where she's in her early 60s and she's up there doing that show because she's, what, 81 or something now? But she's in her in her 60s doing this show. And in fact, she may have been in her late 60s, but up there with a bunch of 20-something dancers. And here's something else, folks. When she's up there dancing, she's singing. She's not lip syncing like a bunch of artists now do. Like she is actually singing those shows. So that was unbelievable. And uh, her cardio must have been crazy good, you know. Her legs too. I mean, I'm sorry. As a a 57-year-old guy who sometimes gets a little arthritis in his knee, I, I'm, I'm more, she's she's 82 now. So she would have been in her mid to late 60s when that footage you're talking about. And yeah. and the other thing is, she like, we had talked last week about Aretha Franklin not really losing her voice. I don't think Turner ever lost her voice. I, I mean, don't I think, think so she, she could just sing with the best of them, you know? And didn't she set a record? Uh, also, the like she had a number one hit in seven decades or something, right? Isn't that? Yeah. I mean, again pretty pretty when you start taking you take a step back 
and you look at these accomplishments, and I'm going to go on a rant here, so bear with me. There's a there's a station in Toronto that plays you know the hits from the 60s, or 70s, 80s, and 90s. I never hear Tina Turner, seldom if ever. You know, and why? Why do I have to hear Duran Duran 15 times a day when there's such uh, this body of work of Tina Turner's is fantastic, and I I, I would like to hear. I have the Private Dancer album as well. I, I think you and I both have it on vinyl, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, the good old record days. Um, but you look at the hits she's had, and they should be being played on the radio. But then again, didn't she just get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? That, well, that's a travesty onto itself, right? I mean, thank goodness. I think there would have been uh, hell to pay if she didn't get voted in the, this past year, right? Unbelievable. I mean, <laughs> but why did it take to, that, to, what, 2021 or 2021 to get to that point? Oh, I hear you. Now, what uh, would have been on the charts, though, at this time? Let's take a peek at those. Well, the charts are kind of interesting at the time. Um, we're talking January of 88, right? Yeah. So it's really the carryover from 87. So number five uh, is an album called Dirty Dancing. Can, which I, is the, can I confess mm-hmm. something? <laughs> sure. I have never seen that movie. Um, you know, this is why we're best friends, Tony, because I've never seen it. <laughs> okay, because Cynthia was talking about it the other day, and she, and I said, you know, I've never seen that, right? And and I don't have any big desire to see it, Aaron. Okay, so this is so funny you say that because last night, or no, yeah, last night I was doing the charts, and I said I can't believe Dirty Dancing was still number five, and my wife said, well, it's a good movie, and I've never seen it, and she looked at me as if I had just grown a second head. <laughs> No, never seen it. And I, I, I got to be with you, Tony, Tony. You and I, I have no desire to uh, to dig that one out of the uh, video archives. Nope. Number four is an album I love, oh. George Michael, Faith. Yes, what a great album. Ah, oh, classic, classic. I love this album. Actually, I, don't, I like the top five this week. Dirty Dancing even has some good songs on it. Having not seen the film, I do like some of the songs. I love Jennifer Warren's. Um, number three, Sting, Nothing Like the Sun. Now, there's another one. I never hear Sting's solo stuff on the radio. And that album was massive when it came out. That's true. You're right. I don't hear Big him album. very often either. Pink Floyd was number two with a momentary lapse of reason. And number one, oh, you know what? Let me back up for a second. This is actually the top five CD sales in okay. America. I, I, Not just albums, but CDs, strictly CDs. And number one was George Harrison, um, Cloud Nine. Oh, nice. Which was, uh, you know, his big comeback album, and it was proof that he did stuff other than My Sweet Lord. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great <laughs> album. Well, you you love, I know for a fact, you love When We Was Fab. So yes. I put, that on the, I put that on the playlist. Oh, and, good. Uh, but George Michael was actually the number one album on the pop charts. Okay. So on the CD charts, Harrison was reigning supreme, and number one was George Michael. But um, we, we should try to talk about George Michael one day. We never talk about him, but I love that man. Yeah, I do too. And well, you know, I love his uh, MTV show that he did. It's fantastic. Oh, so good. Yeah, so good. Wasn't it great? Fantastic. So that was the charts. It was um, an interesting time because it was just a carryover from 87, but some good albums there. Very good albums. Now, this is going to be an unusual series of uh, trips on this road trip we're doing because we're going to head now to 1895. That might be the earliest we've ever gone i can't i can't recall if we've ever gone earlier than 1895 but we're going back to january 11th 1895 to evanston illinois and we definitely won't want to be wearing speedos in 1895 i'll tell you (laughs) 
No, I also got to get my I got to get my mustache waxed. Well, that's right. So uh, <laughs> let's head to 1895. So we're here in 1895 in Evanston, Illinois, to celebrate the birth of a very important individual named Lawrence Hammond, and from his name. You can guess that he was the inventor of the Hammond organ. And this is important for many, many, many reasons. And I just, I just joked with Tony, where would baseball and hockey be without the Hammond organ? Uh, <laughs> where, would, where would 1940s and 50s radio dra- doc, um, dramas be without the Hammond organ? What an instrument, eh, Tony? Oh, it's fantastic. And, you know, uh, Lawrence Hammond was like a renaissance man. You look over his biography. I mean... <laughs> He, uh, you know, what, a hundred inventions, this guy? Like, it was crazy, the stuff that he did. And and some of them are like like the, you know, the, um, he designed a spring-driven clock. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. He designed an early version of 3D glasses. Wow, this guy is, I'd love to, I would love to know, know more about this guy, you know? Yeah, but he was one of those guys who just tinkered his whole life and, uh, came up with all kinds of inventions and, of course, the Hammond organ was his big one and he took a piano and he just gutted it and then put, uh, and, and played around with, uh, putting different ways of tone generation inside the cabinet. And that's where the idea came from. And it, and it certainly stuck and it's got a great legacy in rock and roll as well. Well, I mean, first of all, and, and, and he did that in 1935, which yeah. is even incredible, you know, mid depression. Well, listen, Look at the artists who have used the Hammond organ and look at the hits. I mean, you're talking Proco Harum, one of my definitely top 10 favorite songs of all time, White or Shade of Pale. Oh, yeah. Where, that, that organ and that song, come on. It, it, it's art. It is. Um, but who else, Tony? Well, we got Keith Emerson used it, Led Zeppelin, of course, the Allman Brothers, the Faces. Uh, and he had a pretty good life too. I mean, he died in 1973, but like you said, you know, first manufactured in 35 and incredible, uh, I mean, all kinds of groups, right. Have used this thing. And, uh, Hammond organ is one of those things when you, uh, you buy keyboards, like I've got a digital piano sitting here in my studio and it's got like a Hammond organ voice on it, right? It's one of those ubiquitous, uh, voices that everybody now associates with, uh, rock and roll music. Have you ever played an actual Hammond organ? I have not. I would certainly love to, though. I would think that, like, didn't a lot of churches have them for a while? Or I don't know. Um, none of the churches, I mean, I've been playing at churches for almost 30 years, and, and none of the churches I've played at had that style of organ, but you're probably right. I know a lot of people had similar things even at home, but yeah, what a uh, what a useful invention this was and so much great music came from it and like you say whiter shade of pale like that song i don't even know if you could do that song without that organ part it's just so associated with that track you know well and you, you look at the i mean the first uh you like a vanilla fudge is a version of you keep me hanging on or mm-hmm. lee michaels do you know what i mean great song deep purple with hush yes with roundabout and of course the beatles with now here's something you probably don't know tony but the Beatles used it on a song called Mr. Moonlight, which for many years was my least favorite Beatles song. Oh, really? It's, I think as a kid, it scared me. <laughs> <laughs> With John's scream at the beginning, it's like, ah, it's a bit too intense for me. But um, 
interesting. You said that he passed away in 73, right? Yeah. And the number one single at that time featured a Hammond organ, which was Billy Preston's Will It Go Around in Circles. Oh, which is a fantastic, fantastic song. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I have a, a mutual love of Mr. Billy Preston, right? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, there's some other ones, right? My Love, Paul McCartney. <laughs> Well, and interestingly, Will It Go Around in Circles knocked off Give Me Love by George Harrison from number one, which had knocked off My Love by Paul McCartney. So you have three Beatle thingies happening in 73 as Mr. Hammond. Oh, I mean, I would I would have loved to have sat talk to this guy. I just, <laughs> the more I read about him, the more fascinated I got. Yeah, no, for sure. Now, back in 1895... I mean, I guess there were some recordings. I'm looking at, uh, I saw your notes there, but uh, what did you dig up for for what was selling back in 1895? There weren't a lot of recordings, and the top three recordings sold. Now, you have to bear in mind that Billboard at the time didn't rank them month by month or week by week. They did yearly. Okay. But the three top records are recordings, which would have been either Edison discs or Edison cylinders. And I got to tell you, I found one on Spotify, which I've included in the playlist, which I'm so happy to find. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> a guy named Dan W. Quinn. This guy was huge in 1895. I don't know why we don't hear him today. Um, but he had uh, Girl Wanted, The Band Played On, and The Streets of New York. But, you know, Tony, back then they used to chart um, sheet music. And the, the what I find amazing is America the Beautiful was written that year oh yeah you know or the bell of avenue a which i you know are down in poverty row so there was some interesting things happening in 1895 and i don't know that um any of those songs would have benefited from a hammond organ but who knows <laughs> no but you know and one thing that people don't realize is before the advent of affordable portable recording devices and and playback devices people had pianos in their homes and that's how you uh, entertained yourself that's how you heard your favorite music was you had to play it and for people who you know had a favorite artist that they liked or back then you know i'm assuming more classical music and things like that you might hear your favorite piece a couple of times in your lifetime perform live if you are lucky right mm -hmm. which well which which is how the brother Edison and the recorded disc revolutionized how we hear music today, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it totally changed the way that people thought about music. And uh, now, are you ready to do something a little different? We've uh, mixed things up today on the show, and uh, we're going to do instead of just one from Memphis to Merseyside moment, we found two. So, what do you think? What would you think if we jumped ahead and, and did our Memphis to Merseyside moments today? You know, I think it's good to kind of do things that we bit different once in a while, you know? I do too. So I'm going to queue up Rick's uh, Stinger music here and uh, we'll be right back. So here we are back to the present great trip down to Rio and then back to 1895. Uh, I can't remember a more unusual journey than the one we just took. Yeah, but there wasn't a lot of vegetarian food in 1895. No, <laughs> that's true. In fact, I think they would have looked at you, Vegja what? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, we got to be groundbreaking at some point, Tony. Well, that's right. So 
we've got two moments in our From Memphis to Merseyside segment. The first one, of course, let's do it chronologically. We were talking over the break, and let's start with the king. Let's see what Elvis was up to this week. In fact, this was a really monumental uh, week in rock history for Elvis Presley. This was on January 10th, 1956. Elvis uh, started making his first recordings for RCA Records at the Methodist Television, Radio, and TV Studios in Nashville. And Heartbreak Hotel was one of the first songs recorded during this session, and it was also his first number one after he signed on to RCA, and it was a monster, monster hit. You know, it can't be understated, the influence. And and one of the reasons it's important to do this chronologically, because the next thing we're talking about is the Beatles. There wouldn't be a Beatles without an Elvis. And Heartbreak Hotel, he didn't just, you know, break down the doors. He kicked down the doors. Oh, and, 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 yeah. And I, I still get shivers when I hear that song. It's an amazing song. It is an amazing song. And it's so unusual, too, because it wasn't the the typical rock and roll style song that seemed to be emerging either, was it? No. And, and can you imagine, like, I, I gave you, the, I put down the top five singles at the time. Number one was Dean Martin, Memories Are Made of This. Now, just put your, just put your mind back to the 1956, and you're listening to the radio, yeah. and you hear Dean Martin, <laughs> Dean Martin, right into Heartbreak Hotel. That must have just jarred people, like the likes of which you, we can't understand today, right? Well, absolutely. And uh, so here's, you know, Elvis signs with RCA. He His contract is sold by Sam Phillips for $35,000, which at the time <laughs> was a princely sum. And we've talked about this before, but a lot of people said, uh, you know, why, why would Sam Phillips sell Elvis's contract? But he had no choice. I mean, he would have gone bankrupt uh, if he had have kept Elvis on his roster. Elvis was just getting too big and he had to do something. And selling Elvis's contract just made good business sense, didn't it? It did. But it also, I think Elvis wouldn't have happened the same way had he stuck with Sun Records. I I don't think he would have. Um, had the same impact. I think he would have been famous, but I don't know that he would have had, because I think RCA had the power, because they were a big label, to get his records played. I mean, he, he was on the Dorsey, what was it, the Dorsey Brothers show? and Yeah, listen, like these stats are amazing. So in the first, he made his national TV debut in early 1956. Uh, he had six appearances in the first three months of 1956 on something called the Dorsey Brothers stage show. And then the album itself his first album that he cut with rca was called elvis presley released on march 13th 1956 and that became because it sold for three dollars and 98 cents and it it sold at first uh 300 and some thousand copies it became rca's first million dollar album by a single artist isn't that amazing it is and and the cover has been used so many times. It's an iconic album cover. You've, Clash even borrowed it for their London Calling album. Yeah. And, you know, another story about that studio day, Chet Atkins, who was RCA's uh, head man in Nashville, he was so impressed by Elvis in the studio because I was, you know, reading the stories about this and some of Elvis's buddies, you know, Scotty Moore and Bill uh, Black, they were a little bit nervous because... All of a sudden, they weren't in Memphis anymore. They were in Nashville recording with the big boys. And um, Chad Atkins said, though, Elvis Presley, not nervous at all when he started into recording. And he was so impressed by what he saw that he called his wife and he said, get down here. You've got to see this. So he knew there was something big on the way. 
Yeah, Chad Atkins was a genius too. By the way, I mean, this this you know we could spend a whole other show talking about his accomplishments, but for him to be impressed by Presley says a lot. Now, why don't we jump ahead a few years and for our other from Memphis to Merseyside moment and see what the uh, Fab Four were up to? Which one did you pick? Well, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, in in January, well, actually, it was in '63. Their first album got released in America, but I want to be proud Canadian for a second that we had the Beatles released in Canada a year before they got released in the States. Oh, wow. And um, Capitol Records of Canada put out all the singles in Canada, and their first album was called Beatlemania with the Beatles here in Canada. Now, in America, Capitol Records passed on them. They didn't think there was any any point. Capitol was part of the EMI group, which the Beatles recorded for in England. So Epstein made a separate deal with a label out of Chicago named VJ Records, which was was really a a blues and a jazz label. But they issued their first Beatle album in America called Introducing the Beatles. And, um, you know, it was the first thing. And and initially it did not sell, Tony. It was not. It was a flop because no one knew the Beatles. Once they broke with I Want to Hold Your Hand, the record got to number two on the charts, sold a million three, 1.3 million copies. But... By the end of 64, VJ was forced to stop selling the album, and all those tracks, all those tapes reverted back to Capitol. And if you have a copy of Introducing the Beatles, folks, on VJ, you have a little bit of a gold mine. And, and there's different versions of the album. Uh, I've, I've got it, but it's, it's a really rare album. Oh, wow. um, but yeah, it's a, it, and the cover is, um, is an interesting cover because it's a reverse shot of a... a they, they printed it reversed than they should have. But anyways, that's another story for another time. That was VJ Records, folks. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure the fact that they printed it in reverse probably makes it more valuable as well, right? Well, and the funny story, Tony, is that when the album broke, finally, and started to sell, VJ couldn't keep up with the demands. And there's actually copies of the album where the back cover is just white because <laughs> they couldn't keep up. So they just didn't put anything on the back cover. Interesting stories, interesting times. But, but really... It was a chance for fans in America to hear, because the first album in America was really the second album the Beatles recorded. So this gave people a chance to hear Please Please Me, Love Me Do. And by April, because the Beatles were on so many different labels in the States, by April, that's that famous top five singles were all Beatles singles. Yeah, which is astounding, isn't it? I mean, oh, incredible. And because, again, let's remember, for Elvis... The amount of records he sold and the Beatles meant that people had to leave their homes, go to a record store, and and physically purchase a copy of a record, as opposed to records now charting based on streams, you know? Well, that's right. And now, of, of course, the rules for streaming, too. It, it's only once you hit 30 seconds, it counts as a stream, right? So if someone goes to 31 seconds and then presses stop, that counts as a stream. So that it actually time for me to rant a little bit, if that's okay. <laughs> permission to uh, just rant here a bit or vent. Permission granted. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all ears. It, it drives me crazy when they say like artists like Drake or some of these other guys say, oh, you know, you just broke the Beatles record because no, you didn't. You, you didn't. And flat and simple, pure and simple. You You maybe broke some kind of streaming record, but you didn't break the Beatles record, you know, or one of Elvis's records or whatever, because people did that with intention, you know, and, and that's the, like you say, the, the big difference. And it, it is so frustrating when, when that stuff happens. And I get why, you know, publicists do that. And, and 
because they want to generate interest, right? But it is not. You can't say that someone like Drake or some of these other guys broke the Beatles or Elvis's record you, with a straight face, in my opinion. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated that in 2022, they're still comparing to the Beatles and Elvis, which yeah. shows you the impact. Because I don't think that in 2072, anyone's going to give a damn about Drake. No, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, and that's not to uh, poo-poo Drake's accomplishments, right? I, you know, he's a very, no. very talented, very accomplished guy. But we live in an era now of disposable music, unfortunately. You know, you, you look at some of the stuff that's charting and it, it's throwaway disposable music. Well, the thing is, Tony, back in our day, I'm going to sound like an old man, get off my lawn. But back in my, our day, we would go buy a single, Heartbreak Hotel, Band on the Run, whatever it would be. We'd buy that single and we'd listen to it at our home. But every time we listened to it at home, didn't generate a point on the charts. No. Now, if you're sitting at home and you happen to like a song and you listen to it 15 times, well, you just, that's like equal to 15 sales? No, it's not. It's not at all. It's, it's like what we used to do. I don't know if you did this, but I used to tape songs off the radio, you know, and then listen to them later. That didn't get them any more sales. In fact, it got them no more sales. Well, that's right. <laughs> but so just because you listen to a song 15, 20 times, like, okay, great. I'm glad you like the, you know, whatever song and you've listened to the new Adele song 50 times. That's not 50 sales. You know, 50 sales is going to your local record store and buying the album or the single. Well, right? that's right. Leaving your house, you know, getting on the bus or whatever you did. And, and yeah. So anyway, that is our uh, little rant for the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, rant, rant a nice look at Elvis and the Beatles, though. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. And I love this segment, by the way. I, I'm so glad we decided to uh, chat about our influences at the end of every show, because it always happens when we're researching this show that there's every day of the week there are stories about elvis and the beatles and so wonderful chance for us to talk about that at the end of every show which again speaks to the impact that these two well the band the the beatles and elvis had to this day in 2022 well i mean look at the charts tony and before christmas both elvis and the beatles were on the charts still again you know what i mean yeah that's fantastic isn't it now you know what this has been a fantastic road trip uh and really varied but I think it's time for us to uh, go home now but we uh, we really do appreciate you listening folks and and uh, thanks so much for supporting the show sharing our posts all that good stuff and Aaron I guess we're going to be seeing each other in a few weeks in person again so I am excited about that oh I'm so excited I'm looking forward to it yeah a couple of weeks we're coming up your way and and um, not to be too cryptic but Tony and I are working on another project which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks and yeah. um, and I love you know, as I said to Andrea, I love the fact that we can do this technically, like, you know, on the Zoom calls and stuff or Zencaster. But, man, there's something about sitting in the same room with you face to face. And, it, you know, unfortunately, it takes us longer because we usually crack ourselves up and laugh. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's nothing. Nothing beats it, in my opinion. Well, nothing. same here. But you know what? In another few months, my friend, uh, we're both going to be retired, wild and crazy guys. So we'll have lots of time <laughs> to sit down in person and do this. Yeah, watch out, world. <laughs> <laughs> the Wayback Music Machine World Tour is coming your way. <laughs> All right. You can't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good week, my friend. You too. All the best, man. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening to our road trip. The music was by Rick Denis. And if you're enjoying what you're hearing, 
be sure to click the follow or subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. That way you'll be the first to know whenever we release a new episode. How else can people help, Aaron? They can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and check out our website. And if you think we're worth the five stars, please leave us a review. Thanks for hitting the road with us today, and we'll see you again soon.